This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we continue our examination of the context of the world of Jesus. In our last episode, we covered the context of Judaism specifically, whereas today, we will cover the context of the surrounding culture. Yep. We got two things that we need to point out before we get started. One is that we got a presentation for you. Hopefully another one that will be very helpful in your learning process. And the other is that uh, we got one more week, one more, one more discussion with special guest, Jim Fight. This is it. At least for now. Until you come back next time. You have, you have rocketed straight to the top of the charts as the most often appearing uh, guest host. That's right. That's right. I, I think it might be tied with Kevin. I think Kevin was in uh, three was he? I, I thought think he, so. I thought he only had two appearances. I think we got him for three. So I don't know. I'll have to but check. You're the at archives, the top of the charts. The tied I'll be for back first. next week. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Tied for first at uh, at the very least, and and I think in solidly in first place. But I'm very we'll Greek. I don't like to lose. There you go. Very <laughs> apropos for our it's discussion all about today. me. Yeah. That's right. All right. Speaking of which. So here's what we did. We've been trying to set the context for the ministry and life of Jesus um, by trying to introduce us to the world. The world that Jesus lived in was very unique, and things were changing all over the place in their world. And the Judaism was different. So last discussion that we had, we talked about how Judaism itself had changed. And it was very like internally focused on Judaism itself. Just the conversation of how Judaism was changing impacted, impacts the Jesus conversation immensely. But it's not the only thing that's changing in huge, huge ways because culture, the culture around that Judaism is changing. And so we want to walk through that. We want to walk through that timeline and just kind of point out how things are how things are moving and learn from what's going on there. And so we've kind of created a timeline here for you. And we're going to walk through that. We're going to pick up about 586 BC. About 586 BC is when uh, everybody ends up in Babylonian captivity. Um, and they're there for a handful of decades. About 538 BC is when that decree of Cyrus allows them to begin the return, as we looked at in Ezra and Nehemiah in session two. They begin their return back home to rebuild. And that's when. And again, scholars disagree, historians debate, but somewhere in there is when synagogue really kind of comes back home and takes root. Are they building buildings then? We just don't know. But this new Judaism is finding its rootedness. It's finding its identity in that time until about somewhere around 330 B.C. I think we have 332 on your timeline. Uh, BC is when Alexander the Great goes on his great world conquest to essentially conquer the civilized world in the West. And and Alexander the Great, I want to pause here and just talk about Alexander the Great for a while, because it's not just, if, we, if we've studied uh, world history and just the history of just social study, we've definitely studied Alexander the Great and his world conquest. He was more than a conqueror. Alexander the Great was more than just a great uh, commander. He would, he did more than just conquer the world. Uh, Alexander the Great was, in a lot of ways, an evangelist. He he had a euangelion. Euangelion is the Greek word we use for gospel or good news. And that, that term was not created by the writers of Scripture. Gospel was not created at all by the New Testament. Uh, it, it predates that word, and its idea predates uh, and we'll talk about this more later as well, but it predates scripture, um, uh, New Testament by a few centuries because the Greeks at the very least, and some will argue much earlier, but the Greeks really brought this idea of a gospel 
to the stage. Um, because the Greeks had over, you know, ever since the 7th and 8th century BC, the Greeks had been creating a world. And the Greeks believed that this new world was going to change everything. And it's a world that we ended up calling Hellenism. History will know the Greek worldview that we're talking about as Hellenism. And that has nothing to do with hell as in the place with a red guy in red tights and a pitchfork. Not that place. Not that hell. It's Hellenism based off of the Greek idea of Hellas. Uh, great Wikipedia search there will just do you some good if you just search for that. Um, but yeah, Hellenism is named after Hellas and was a Greek worldview that had made one significant shift. And I know that some people like to argue with this and say it had happened before with Egypt, it had happened before in other places, but they had not systematized it like the Greeks had in Hellenism. The Greeks made one significant shift, as Jim was joking about earlier. The Greeks had made their worldview all about me for the first time in human history in a system of thought and a worldview. They hadn't gotten rid of the gods. That would be silly. What a, what a horrible move that would be. They just bumped the gods out of the center of the story. So if you think about all of ancient history, Jewish history, pagan history, doesn't matter. Every form of worldview centered around their concept of God or the gods. Um, Whatever it was that they did and however they interacted in the world and whatever it is that they pursued centered around an idea of what made the gods happy, what made the gods angry, what the gods were doing. Everything was centered around the gods. You had a God-centric worldview. The Greeks changed all that. And if you just think about what you know about Greeks and Greek thought, it's going to make sense. Think about Greek mythology. What are the... What are the Greek gods like, Jim? What do they remind you of? What do they look like? They look like us. Yeah, they look like men. See, in Greek thought, instead of God making man in his image, Greeks very much made gods in man's image. There was one Greek philosopher who said, uh, man is the measure of all things. Uh, when you put man in the center of the worldview, he's now the new ruler. Humanity is now the new ruler. And so you create gods in your image. And so if you think about Greek mythology, what you always have is a bunch of gods who are super powerful. They have these superpowers, but they're kind of stupid. While mankind is super brilliant, they're just not super powerful. And so what happens in almost every stage of Greek mythology? You have a god who somehow has a child with a man creating what we would call a demigod. And this demigod has the best of both worlds. He's smart like a man, powerful like a god, and overcomes whatever divine retribution or godly conflict is being encountered in that myth. The Greeks had just changed everything by shifting the measure of all things to make it not the gods and that whatever code, whatever divine code had been handed down, but making it mankind. What that did was, Jim was joking earlier, it's all about me. That's, that's Hellenistic thought. Hellenistic thought, if, it's, if I'm the measure of all things, well, the point of my existence just changed. Because now it's about my comfort and my leisure and my luxury and my security and my, everything just shifted. It's no longer about what the gods desire and what the gods want. It's about what I desire and what I want and what I need. And so the, like the anthem of, uh, I remember being in Israel and somebody taught me this, the anthem of Hellenism, the great, I believe it was Frank Sinatra. I did it. 
I won't sing it. Sorry. I almost did. I almost broke out in a song there. Jim shot me a look that said, don't even think about it. I did it my way. But yeah, the old Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way. That's the, that's the anthem of Hellenism. Um, have it your way right away. Uh, if this stuff is starting to sound normal, there's a sign on one of the campuses that I work at here in Washington State, right outside the coffee shop. Big, big picture of a cup of coffee, and in the middle of the coffee, it has the statement, make your mornings about you. There you go. Brent's got it. In fact, I bet he can drop I'll it into the show. The there you go. That is Hellenism. If this is sounding familiar, it's because we live unashamedly in a Hellenistic culture. If you're a college student in anything from architecture to civil engineering to any form of social study to unashamedly you are studying probably very deliberately and directly but indirectly you're studying greco-roman thought it's, it's hellenistic um uh, let, let's pull us apart some more uh, alexander the great believed he was bringing a gospel a good news the good news the good the gospel the good news that greece is here hellenism is here And Hellenism has brought you four things. Alexander the Great essentially said, if you give me four things, I'll change the course of human history. Give me four things. I don't need an army. Because the problem with conquering the world is you got to leave this big army behind to keep people in line. How do you keep making your army bigger and bigger and bigger as you conquer more and more of the world? How was Alexander the Great able to conquer the entire world? He was able to do it because of Hellenism. He said, I don't need an army. I just need four things. Give me education. Give me health care. Give me entertainment and give me athletics. Give me those four pillars and I will change the world because I will tug at the heart of everybody's desire for selfish ambition. I'll tug at their desire for comfort and leisure and luxury. And those are the things that I want to build my culture on. And so everywhere you go in the Greco-Roman world, and boy, Jim and Brent both have been on the trips you go to a Greco-Roman world. Do you see the same four things everywhere that we go? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, everywhere you go, you're going to see education. Uh, they had what, the, what they called gymnasium. <clears throat> we have a slide in your presentation that shows you pictures of these things. Uh, education was represented by gymnasium. I would say think university. When I say gymnasium, you ought to think university. Um, classrooms, the place of study. Alexander the Great said, if you give me education, I can control what people learn and what people think and what people know. Second one was healthcare. They had what was called asclopion, essentially a hospital. Think hospital. The Greeks brought that to the world. Give me healthcare. Everybody needs healthcare. So now I'm making a people that are dependent upon uh, the imperial provision that I provide them. Give me entertainment because that's going to tap me into their desires and the things that they think and the things that they believe that they need. And so in their world, they created theater and many other things, but theater would be the, the image you might think of for entertainment. And then Alexander the Great said, give me athletics because athletics is going to create uh, a world built on competition and tribal identity. Um, if this all sounds familiar, it's because this is our world. Like pay attention to the next election cycle. What are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about education. We're going to talk about healthcare. Um, it's going to be driven by media and entertainment. And one of the things that always baffled my mind is when we, when we watched baseball and there was that whole period of time, not that it's over, but there was that period of time where steroids was the big conversation. And so people like Barry Bonds would go sit before Congress, a special congressional committee. 
And I used to always think, what in the world does baseball, steroids and baseball, have to do with politics? And then I learned about Hellenism and I realized, oh my goodness, it's because if you lose the integrity of one of these pillars, this is not just an entertainment issue. This is a socio-political issue because this is, this is a pillar of Hellenism. Like a culture is built upon, you get the idea. We can go on and on and on about this, but Alexander the Great built cities in the, in the region of Judea. He built what was called the Decapolis. We'll talk more about the Decapolis, Decapolis. Deca meaning what, Jim? Deca. Ten. Ten. Polis meaning what? City. City. Ten cities, right? He builds these, he builds this reason of ten cities built on the premise of Hellenism, brand new cities. They're brilliant. They are, they're, they're, they're beautiful. They have incredible, we're, we're, after walking around the desert, Jim, what was it like to walk into a Greco-Roman city? Awful. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I'm kidding. It was actually wonderful. Yeah. It's stunning, wasn't it? It was. Like you walked in and everybody goes, wow, because after being in the desert and it was so deceptive because you had just spent all that time in the desert. And did you feel like you were close to God in the desert? No. Actually, I'm kidding. Yes. (laughs) I felt more closer there than... Yeah, absolutely. In the desert, you know you need God. Oh, my goodness. And everybody, you leave the... By the time... You, if you're on one of our trips, by the time you leave the desert, you're like... You remember you remember session one? Like in session one in Baymont where we were talking about the desert? Oh, like those were... But then you walk into this... And all of a sudden, you forget all of it. Because it's like, wow, look at that. Look at what... Look at what... We've, look at what we've, they, had, they had running water. Like plumbing. Hellenism brought you plumbing. Yeah, Jim's a plumber. He's over here shaking his fist. Yeah. <laughs> what a, what a, and is this stuff evil inherently in and of itself? Of course not. But it comes with a worldview. It comes with a worldview that begins to speak a narrative to you. Alexander the Great brought this worldview. Now, so if you keep going on your timeline, you're going to see that uh, Alexander the Great takes over the world. And eventually, Alexander the Great does what every good, amazing man does he dies. <laughs> Sorry, Marty joke. Um, and when he dies, he hands this Greek empire over to four different rulers. Uh, eventually in the north, it's going to be Lysimachus. Uh, there's one far to the uh, west that I always forget his name. To the east, you're going to have a guy by the name of Seleucus. And then down to the south in the uh, region of Egypt, you're going to have Ptolemy. And these four rulers take over the Greek kingdom. And uh, the one that rules the area of Judea, where the Jews have resettled in Jerusalem, uh, is Ptolemy. Now, Ptolemy had a particular approach with his Hellenism. It, it resembled much more Alexander the Great style. I don't need a big military show of force. I just need to put Hellenism in front of you, and you, you'll eventually come. You'll lap it up. Um, and so Ptolemy took that approach. He says, here's Hellenism. I really feel like all you Jews need to be Greeks. I think you would love it, but that's up to you. I'm not going to make you be Greek. I'm just going to make it really hard to not be Greek. And I'm going to make you really want to be Greek. And the Jews were able to either love that or resist that, whatever they wanted to do. But eventually, the Seleucids uh, go to war against the Ptolemies. And you see a period there of 198 to 167 B.C., it says oppression under Hellenistic Seleucids. And the Seleucids overtake uh, the Ptolemies, and they take over the region of Judea. And they rule for, as you see there, a few decades before eventually they come into Jerusalem. And um, in, uh, um, whatever you want to call it, in a 
unbelievable show of force. They take over the temple. Uh, Seleucus goes into the temple and sacrifices a pig on the altar. And the, the, the Jews, there is a group of Jews that are unbelievably committed. They will end up being a group that we will call the zealots later. But at this point, they're not the zealots. They are just a people full of zeal and devotion and commitment. And they cannot believe that somebody just sacrificed a pig on the altar of God in their temple. And so they go, they go bananas. They, they lose it and they revolt. And they lead what's known as the Maccabean Revolt which is the story of Hanukkah. For anybody that understands the story of Hanukkah, it is this eight-day revolt where they go up against literally the most powerful army in the world at that point, and somehow, miraculously, this band of Jewish rebels um, end up overthrowing the Seleucids in Jerusalem, getting their temple back, and kicking the Seleucids out. Um, and as a legend, the whole story of Hanukkah, as a legend has it, they got into the temple after eight days of the priests not being in there to attend the lampstand, and the lampstand was still miraculously burning eight nights without oil, somehow still going. Is that literally true? I don't know. wasn't there, but that's how the story of Hanukkah tells it. And so they kick out the Seleucids, and that leads to almost a century, just over a century, 167 to 63 BC, uh, that leads to a period of Jewish rule known as the Hasmonean dynasty or the Hasmonean kingdom. You see uh, in your timeline there, it even says Maccabean in parentheses. But here is the problem. The Maccabees were the ones that overthrew the Seleucids, led by a guy by the name of Judah Maccabee which just means Judah the Hammer. Maccabee is not his last name. That's his nickname. It's his call sign, Judah the Hammer. And he led the revolt. And when they won the war, they needed to decide who's going to rule. And so they went back to their text because they've become people of the what, Jim? Of the text. Of the text. And they went, you know what God wanted from the beginning? He wanted priests to rule. He didn't want a king. And so those Maccabean rebels handed the kingdom over to the priests, trying to do the right thing. Well, within 20 years of handing that dynasty over to the Hasmoneans, who were the priests at that time, the Hasmoneans become completely Hellenistic. They just love Hellenism. Now, they are ruling. They have your land back. You have your temple back. But they love the arena. They love the theater. They love Hellenism and all that it has to offer. And that ends up being that priestly class that we're going to know later as the Sadducees. Um, how do you suppose, Jim, those Maccabeans felt about that, those rebels? I don't think they were very happy. After all of that work to th- overthrow the Seleucids, and then, and then all of a sudden to have the priests turn around and become... Josephus, to give you an, an idea, Josephus writes that there weren't enough priests to even run Shabbat services in the temple, to run service in the temple because they were all at the naked mud wrestling tournaments. Just let that sink in. Like that's the same thing as like not being able to have church because all the pastors are at Sunday football. Like all of them. And, And there were a lot, by the way. There were so many priests, thousands of priests that you only worked two weeks a year. That's how many priests there were. You worked two weeks a year and yet there weren't enough priests available to even run Shabbat services. That is wild. That is how, uh, that, and now a lot of historians say Josephus exaggerates all the time, and maybe that's true, but it gives us an idea of who those Sadducees were. There is, by the way, uh, if you weren't a priest, but you liked Hellenism, if, essentially, if you agreed with the worldview of the priests, you just weren't a priest, 
We called that group of people Herodians. We'll talk about Herod later. But that group of people would be the Herodians. Uh, and that's who we're dealing with um, uh, when we talk about Sadducees and Herodians. They're, they are, they're the group of people that love Hellenism. And they believe that you can have both. You can have the, I can follow God. I can love him with all my heart and all my soul and all my might. And I can also have leisure and luxury and comfort and security. I can also have arena and entertainment. Don't throw them under the bus because hopefully that sounds familiar because that is where most of us live in our culture. Now, um, while we're sitting here, it'd be a good time to mention that Jim was right. Those zealots, those Maccabeans, and a whole nother group of Jews thought, this is unbelievably, I can't believe we did this. And so they leave. And this group is called the Hasidim. And they go up north to the Galilee. And they settle there. And two groups are going to come out of this. This group goes and they plant cities like Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Cana, Nazareth, Sepphoris. Uh, these are cities that are planted by these ultra-devoted Hasidim, uh, which means pious ones in the Hebrew. They rejected the compromise of the Judeans in the south. And they went up north to build a different kind of fundamentalist, devoted Judaism that was totally committed to the way of God. Uh, and that will be the Judaism of the Galilee, where Jesus does so much of his ministry. Two groups will come out of that. The Hasidim are going to represent zealots and Pharisees. They're very, very similar. Total devotion to following God. But one group is going to be devoted with the sword, redemptive violence. And the other group is going to be devoted with absolute obedience. The zealots will be people of the sword and Pharisees will be people of absolute obedience and devotion. So if you go back to your timeline, you're going to see that Rome eventually comes in and conquers Judea. When the Sadducees who are in charge, they're the Hasmoneans, when the Sadducees see Rome on the horizon, they immediately begin working uh, to find a solution that will keep them in power because they know that Rome is going to eventually strip them of power and they're going to lose all that stuff that they've built the last century, building all of their luxury, all of their um, uh, advantage, all of their privilege, all of their comfort. They're going to lose all of that. And so they end up pursuing uh, Herod, Herod the Great. Um, and we'll talk more about Herod the Great later. Um, but Herod the Great was the son of the king of Idumea. Brent, can you remember where we talked about Idumea? Idumea Nabatea. Uh, that was at... It was also the people of Edom. Oh, well, when we talked about it previously in the podcast? Yeah. That was... Uh, which book was that? Some book was written to the people of Edom. Mm, Nahum? Not quite. They built Petra. Yeah. I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> Obadiah. Oh, yeah. Uh, obscure book of Obadiah written to those Idumean Nabataeans. I really thought I'd have the prophets down better after we went through it this time, but I still, <laughs> I still cannot remember yeah. anything. Well, let's just, let's just do a fly-through of Herod. Herod is the son of the Idumean Nabataean king. Well, what big deal is that? They built Petra. Okay, cool, whatever. Okay, but the Nabataeans owned the spice trade. To give you an... Uh, imagine if one people group owned the oil in our world. Like spices in their world was the oil of our world. Like imagine if one people group owned all of the oil and 
the wealth that would be established. Herod inherited. Herod was by far, uh, even if even if historians exaggerate. Just just to clarify on that, like in our modern world, like a lot of people might think, oh, Saudi Arabia, that's where all the oil comes. We have tons of oil in the U.S. Sure, there's tons of oil coming from Venezuela. Yeah, like it's it's everywhere. Enough that there's competition in the market. Yeah, there's competition. Yeah, we're talking about one people group in yes. the entire world owns the spice trade has a monopoly on one, that one resource that everybody needs right there is so much wealth in the kingdom of Idumea and nabatea that herod herod is by far the wealthiest man to ever walk the face of the earth and i mean that like even if historians exaggerate bill gates would mow herod's lawn uh herod had unbelievable immeasurable wealth that's even hard to fathom which is why the Sadducees, those Hasmoneans, went to Herod. They knew they could never combat Rome and its power. Rome was incredibly powerful. What Rome struggled with was wealth. And so they went and established a relationship with the wealthiest man on the planet and said, how about you come be our king and we can hold a, we can hold a beautiful relationship in tension with the Romans? Well, it ended up working. Um, because Rome looked at Herod and said, well, we want to be able, essentially Herod offered his wealth as an asset to the Romans power and Rome wanted it. And so they established this working relationship between what we know as Herod the Great in history and Caesar, even Julius Caesar was a part of this conversation in, in Roman history. And so that's what you have in your timeline. You have the Roman conquest of Judea in 63 BC, and then you have Herod's reign officially beginning in 37 BC, and Herod ends up dying in 4 BC. Well, somewhere around there, because of how those gospel accounts work, uh, you're going to have the birth of Jesus at about uh, 6 BC. Um, And that's how that all works out. It's kind of hard to piece your history together, depending on what you do with the Gospels and the data that we find within the Gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus. But Herod dies in 4 BC. Jesus is born somewhere around 6 BC. Now, when Herod dies, he ends up having to hand his kingdom off to his sons. And I actually will have some maps that I'll give to Brent and we can throw in the presentation here that will show you how Herod splits up his kingdom after his death. He gives his sons uh, Philip in the north, uh, Archelaus in central Judea, and then southern Judea is uh, handed off to, no, excuse me, uh, Archelaus rules in southern Judea, and then uh, Antipas rules in more central Judea, what we might call the Galilee. And so you can look at that on that map there. Archelaus is a horrible ruler. History, he barely even survives long enough to even get honorable mention in history if he wasn't a son of Herod the Great and immediately is replaced by uh, Rome. Rome finds their own ruler, who we're going to know in history by Pontius Pilate. Um, Governor Pilate is sent in to rule after Archelaus just can't hold peace in the south. So that gives you um, just some of that as you look at your timeline. Eventually, Jesus' ministry is going to be, public ministry is going to be somewhere around AD 27 to 30. Jesus is going to be crucified in AD 30. That's debated, but somewhere in that area. Uh, there's going to be a second Jewish revolt in AD 66 through 73. We'll get to all that later. AD 70 is when that uh, temple, that revolt. First or second Jewish revolt? Uh, well, first Jewish revolt, I guess, I mean, I said second, I think in my mind, thinking about the Maccabean revolt of Hanukkah. 
But really, I think in Roman history, they call it the first Jewish revolt. And I think that's what we actually have in your timeline there is first Jewish revolt against Rome, where the other Jewish revolt was against the Greeks. Um, and that fails. It's going to end with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Uh, the revolt's finally going to be absolutely done with the fall of Masada in AD 73. We'll talk about that more later. Um, and then there's a second revolt against Rome in the Bar Kokhba revolt much, much later. And we'll get to that all the way in session five. But that gives you a, an idea of who we're dealing with here. And the one group we didn't talk about was a group called the Essenes. Uh, the Essenes was a group of people that were from that priesthood, that corrupt priesthood, that compromising priesthood, uh, but they couldn't stand it. But they weren't a part of the Hasidim that went up north. Instead, this group ran out into the desert and they set up a place like Qumran. Most historians believe Qumran was an Essene compound. And they were the people that were lied behind the work of the Dead Sea Scrolls. If anybody knows their history well, you're familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they became a people that were ultimately committed to knowing the path and walking the path out in the middle of the desert. All of this serving as just a fly-by lesson. Um, because what we're going to do for the next podcast is we're going to dive into all five of these people groups. What I wanted to do today was, last time we talked about how Judaism changed. Today I wanted to talk about how culture changed. And Hellenism changed the world that Judaism was living in, and Judaism had to figure out how they were going to respond to this, what many Jews found to be an unbiblical worldview of Hellenism. And so how are you going to respond? And what I wanted to show you today was the five different groups. Um, Two groups embraced Hellenism and said we can do both, and that would be Sadducees and Herodians. One group abandoned that worldview, and that would be the Essenes, who ran out to the desert to be devoted to the text. And then there was two other groups that we know in history as Hasidim, the Zealots, and the Pharisees, and they went up north to the Galilee. We're going to spend a lot more time talking about them, not only when we study Jesus, but even before we get there. Uh, So just an introduction to them, uh, get to meet them, and if you feel like a little like deer in the headlights. Do you remember learning this for the first time, Jim? I do. <laughs> a little it was, intimidating. It was very brutal. Yeah. So if you feel a little deer in the headlights, that's okay. That's probably how you should feel. We're just going to continue to talk about it, continue to pull it apart, uh, continue to look at it as we study Jesus. And over time, uh, this is going to start to make sense, but you'll realize how important all of this context is to understanding all the different conversations that Jesus has. So that's what we're doing. Got some more conversations to come. Sounds great. Well, Jim, it's been great having you on our podcast. Indeed. Thanks, guys. Thanks for letting me join in on the fun. Oh, man. So in much this fun. really small room. <laughs> yeah, it's toasting here, so I'll wrap up. Yeah. Uh, if you want to get a hold of Jim, you can find him on Twitter at Bama Follower. Marty is at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. You can find more details about the show at BamaDiscipleship.com. And thanks for joining us on the Bama Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.